Greetings and welcome back to our conference titled, A Fed for Next Time, Ideas for a Crisis-Ready Central Bank. In this conference, we are looking at ways to improve the ability of the Fed to better respond to future crisis while minimizing its entanglement with politics. This conference is being hosted by the Mercatus Center as well as the Cato Institute. George Selgin and I are the hosts. Last Tuesday, George kicked off the conference with a panel that looked at the issue of credit policy by the Federal Reserve. It was a great panel, and I encourage you to look at it if you haven't already. Today's panel is titled Defining Fiscal Stimulus Duties and will help us better understand where to draw the lines between fiscal policy and monetary policy. I will now turn our program over to Chris Condon, who is a Federal Reserve reporter for Bloomberg. He will be moderating our panel. Chris, it is all yours. Thanks very much, David. I am honored to be shepherding the conversation today. I'd like to welcome our audience. Um, and as David said, we're hoping to examine the boundaries between fiscal and monetary policies, which as we have seen in recent weeks can become quite blurred during a crisis. So perhaps it's a good time to ask, why is it that these boundaries should exist in the first place? What are the consequences for our economy and our democratic institutions if they're poorly drawn or if we don't remain faithful to them? And what might we do to improve those boundaries or better observe them so that when the next crisis occurs, whether that's two or 20 years from now, we'll be better able to respond? Uh, to tackle all this, we have an outstanding panel. Each of our three guests will have a short presentation and we'll follow with the discussion and question and answer period. You can submit your questions via the Cato website or on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube by using hashtag CatoEcon. That's hashtag CatoEcon, all one word, of course. So let's turn to our panel. I'll introduce them in the order in which they'll be speaking to you today. First, we have Peter Conti Brown. Peter is an assistant professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and a non-resident fellow at the, uh, in economic studies at the Brookings Institution. His law degree from Stanford Law and a PhD in history from Princeton. He's the author of The Power and Independence of the Federal Reserve. And he's working on a new political history of the Fed to be published next year from Norton Livewright. After Peter, we're very fortunate to have Elga Barch, Managing Director and Head of Macro Research at the BlackRock Investment Institute. Prior to joining BlackRock, Elga was Global Head of Economics and Chief European Economist at Morgan Stanley in London. She is a member of the ECB Shadow Council and a trustee of the IFO Institute for Economic Research. She has a master's and PhD from Keele University. And last but certainly not least, Joseph Mason, professor of finance at Louisiana State University and a senior fellow at UPenn's Wharton School. Previously, he was senior financial economist at the U.S. Office of the Comptroller of the Currency and a visiting scholar at the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia and at the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. His background on financial crises and various forms of bailouts, including the numerous formed under the Reconstruction Finance Corporation has been cited by academics and in the media worldwide. He has a PhD from the University of Illinois at Champaign. 
Peter, could you please take it away? Glad to do it. Thank you so much for that introduction, Chris, and to David Beckworth, George Selgin, and all the, the rest for hosting such a terrific set of panels at uh, a most appropriate time to be considering these, these questions. And I'll be clear, we're not the only ones considering them. A few weeks ago, I was taking the garbage out, and behind a mask was my wonderful neighbor who knows what I do for a living, and he asked me through that mask, are we a country with a central bank or a central bank with a country? Now, to be clear, we are a country with a central bank. Let me answer that question directly. I, have, I also wanna be clear that I have little patience for the Fed conspiracy theorists who think that the Fed is an acronym and spend most of their lives on Twitter. Uh, and to be clear, my neighbor uh, is also not one of those conspiracy theorists. What his question gets at is the question for our panel, which is about boundaries. How do we make sure that our central bank serves the needs of our nation? How do we make sure that the institution itself, legally constituted, that evolves by norms and practices that shift over time to answer financial and economic and even political needs that themselves shift over time, how do we make sure that we get the best from that institution? And how do we manage the inevitable unintended consequences by those efforts? And today we're talking about the line between fiscal and monetary policy, but I wanna talk about some limiting principles in general that cabin or seek to cabin the Federal Reserve and other central banks from other democratic and technocratic institutions and why none of these limiting principles is likely to be effective on its own. I wanna talk about these limiting principles epistemologically. By epistemology here, I mean the different tools that we use to inquire about knowledge and truth related to, but a little bit different from disciplines that we have in evaluating the structure and purposes and functions of institutions. So I wanna talk about four epistemologies or disciplines in this approach. First law, then history, then finance, and finally politics. And in each case, I wanna highlight why these disciplines are valuable, even vital, for determining how we can limit the functions uh, of the Federal Reserve in a crisis but how none taken alone is sufficient. So first let's talk about the law. If you were to ask the question, what can the Fed do and what can it not do? For many citizens and certainly lawyers, the answer is, well, we should refer to the Federal Reserve Act, the central bank's founding charter. It's a statute passed through constitutional means to become the law of the land. Uh, and indeed the Federal Reserve Act is filled with many positive and negative limitations, mandates and restrictions. But to illustrate the epistemological problem as of law as a limiting principle, right? So to say, tell Congress, you simply need to write a law that limits what the Fed can do. Uh, to illustrate why I think that that is not a sufficient answer, I wanna walk through three different legal problems that I would regard as easy, medium, and hard uh, in the case of the Fed's emergency lending, 
to see what the law, if your understanding of the law is traversed, would actually mean. Um, here's an easy one. In section 13.3b.4 of the Federal Reserve Act is all online, so you can, if you're interested, Google this and you can read along with me. There is a very simple sentence. The board may not establish any program or facility under this paragraph, meaning it's emergency lending authority, without the prior approval of the Secretary of the Treasury. That's it, that's the whole sentence. So surely, from a legal perspective, one limiting principle is that whatever else the Fed may do or whatever else emergency lending may be, it must have the approval of the Secretary of the Treasury. But what if the Fed just doesn't do that? What if the Secretary of the Treasury gets, seeks approval from the Fed before engaging in its emergency interventions? What if the Fed, and I don't wanna, uh, I wanna be clear, there's no evidence at all that the Fed has done it in the 2020 crisis. But what if some future central banker just said, we're not gonna, what then? Well, I think I call that an easy problem because the legal limitation is so clear. Um, but uh, what happens when a central bank chooses to ignore even clear legal restrictions is not at all an easy problem. Let me take a question that I would regard as medium difficulty in statutory interpretation. Uh, and this is one that my friend and our panelist from Tuesday, Lev Manon, sees as a, a limiting principle, but I'm not so sure. In 13.3b.1, we read, as soon as is practicable after the passage of Dodd-Frank, the board shall establish by regulation the policies and procedures governing emergency lending under this paragraph. Now that happened as soon as is practicable, took about three years, but they did it. Now, reading again in the statute, such policies and procedures shall be designed to ensure that any emergency lending program or facility is for the purpose of providing liquidity to the financial system and not to aid a failing financial company. I'm gonna read that part again, but I'm gonna change the way I emphasize the words. Such policies and procedures shall be designed to ensure that any emergency lending program or facility is for the purpose of providing liquidity to the financial system. And I'll just stop there. You see the difference? On one reading, it seems that the Dodd-Frank amendments restrict any emergency lending under 13.3 to the financial system. But in the first reading, it seems to be that whatever restrictions might be in place are that emergency lending cannot be to aid a failing financial company and must be toward the system. Now, I regard this as a medium uh, question. I think those who read it as Lev does, and he's not alone, are making a perfectly reasonable uh, textual interpretation of the statute. But I think my version is also pretty reasonable. And I think 13.3 is meant to be systemic interventions, facilities, not individual companies, and that taken in its full context, that would be true. So who's right? Is Peter's version correct or is Lev's? Well, we don't have a judge to intervene and settle the score. And so we get a question of medium legal interpretation. Now here's one that I would regard as harder, but related. It's in the same section, 13.3b1. And it says that these regulations that the Fed must pass around emergency lending 
have to be uh, have to be sure that are designed to ensure that the security for emergency loans is sufficient to protect taxpayers from losses, and that any such program is terminated in a timely and orderly fashion. What does timely and orderly fashion mean? How do taxpayers realize losses from a non-appropriated entity like the Fed? Is that just through the remittance that comes at year's end? What if that remittance was completely non-legal? It wasn't formalized in statute until seven years after the statute was written. Now I could go on. I love this stuff, reading the Federal Reserve Act. Most of you won't. But even if you do, we must all realize that law's power as a limiting principle to which all of us may unanimously agree is a mirage. It's very fraught, even for easy cases, um, but very hard ones can, be, can make law extremely clumsy to circumscribe the power of, uh, of central banks. And if you don't believe me, then I want you to go look at two recent Supreme Court cases, one on DACA and the other on Title VII, and see if you agree that textualism is always such a straightforward exercise. All right. Uh, I'm going, I want to spend most of the time on law because this is one of the most obvious tools that we reach for when thinking about limiting, but I want to go quickly through history, finance, and finally politics. For history, one of the most enduring traditions of the central bank of, federal, of the Federal Reserve is the vaunted concept of Fed independence. Now, many people view Fed independence as having its origins in what is now called the Fed Treasury Accord of 1951. And I think that's all incorrect, just as a matter of history. What the central negotiating parties thought they were accomplishing in 1951 was disputed even before the ink was dry on the single sentence that constitutes an accord, which by itself simply announces that an accord was struck. To look at history then uh, is also a fraught exercise, I say humbly as a historian. In central banking, history provides sticky precedents, but not always clear guidance. And when we assume that history speaks with clarity to which all of us must subscribe, we are very likely to make mistakes. Indeed, I view the Fed Treasury Accord as gaining its life after uh, to justify the substantial interventions sideways and orthogonal from the president by Paul Volcker uh, a quarter century later. What about finance? Would a financial principle to limit the Fed's scope be better? For example, we might say the Fed should only lend to firms facing liquidity constraints, not firms that are insolvent. I'd like you to identify small or medium businesses or even large ones in the current COVID-19 pandemic economic crisis uh, who are clearly not insolvent even as they prepare for bankruptcy. The line between solvency and liquidity is famously hard to identify in a crisis. The same would go for assigning lendable value to collateral or to saying uh, that the way that we underwrite these loans can only take this amount of losses versus that, or that underwriting must follow this number of citizens in a county, but not that. These are line drawing problems extraordinaire, and they are quite complicated 
to assert at the margin especially, but even conceptually, that they will provide these limitations. Finally, politics. And I wanna say a word about the CARES Act. CARES Act creates a structure that if not brand new under the sun, is extremely unusual in Fed history, which is that it directs the treasury to invest appropriated taxpayer funds into facilities that the Fed creates and manages. In other words, it creates a structure that turns the usual conception of Fed independence on its ear. We're not so much worried about protecting the Fed from politics as we are saying that politics must follow the Fed's lead. And I, I'll confess that I am troubled by this structure. I don't want to second guess emergency responders who are working furiously in order to provide uh, interventions that I would regard as desperately necessary, even if in a world of second or third bests. But I will say that if this endures, if this becomes a sticky precedent and tries to lay claim on future politicians and central bankers, I fear very much uh, a world not just where the Fed should be protected from politics, but where politics should be protected from the Fed. I think it is probably better if we abandon the CARES Act structure for future iterations of emergency lending and say that fiscal policy with appropriated funds should be done by the Treasury with the political oversight that we'd expect for that and that emergency lending facilities in unusual and exigent circumstances should be the exclusive purview of the Fed with initial approval by the Secretary of the Treasury and distinct oversight sufficient for those actions. The last thing I'll say as I'm running out of time is I wanna express some humility about these conclusions. I'm not at all certain of them. I wonder sometimes uh, in my scholarly efforts to pull the curtain back on the Wizard of Oz on Constitution Avenue, the Federal Reserve, if the citizens of Emerald City aren't better off knowing that there's a good wizard out there managing the system, or if we're better off exposing the Fed and placing it on a more realistic foundation that these are people with expertise who have worldviews and are exercising value judgments. I didn't read the second book to find out what happened in Emerald City after the wizard was exposed. Maybe they thrived and maybe they didn't. So hopefully my co-panelists will have some more concrete examples about what if I am right and we should be doing things differently, what then would be better? Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Peter. Uh, Elga, I'd like to turn it over to you now for your presentation. Yes, uh, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Uh, when David reached out and asked me whether I uh, would like to speak at uh, an event entitled uh, A Fed for Next Time, Ideas for a Crisis-Ready Central Bank, I couldn't help thinking, but that next time is now. Um, because the way uh, that I see it is that what we are seeing right now, and to some extent Peter has uh, named some of the examples, we're really going through a macroeconomic policy revolution. Um, that policy revolution um, is needed to, to sufficiently cushion against the coronavirus shock. 
Um, but it, in terms of the speed and the size, and in particular the extent to which monetary policy is now going direct, um, is blurring uh, the boundaries between fiscal and monetary policy. And um, such a policy shift could indeed open the door uh, to not only unprecedented government intervention in financial markets and private companies, uh, but it could also further down the road create a slippery slope uh, unless uh, we um, are starting to put some proper guardrails around the coordination between monetary and fiscal policy and start to think about how best to define an exit strategy. Um, so um, what I would like to talk about is a proposal um, that we made in a joint paper uh, with Stan Fischer, Philip Hildebrandt and Jean Bovin last August, uh, where we um, sort of looked forward to the next uh, downturn and argued that in the next downturn, which is clearly now, um, which we didn't anticipate at the time, that it would be quite so soon, that we would really need to go from unconventional monetary policy um, that followed the global financial crisis to an unprecedented degree of policy coordination. Um, and um, so um, in, the, in, the, in the paper, um, we sort of highlighted um, that the strict separation between monetary and fiscal policy uh, that we have seen for much of the uh, post-war history on both sides of the Atlantic will probably no longer work in the next downturn. And one um, key reason why we came to this conclusion was indeed the limited leeway central banks around the world, even the Federal Reserve, had to provide fresh monetary policy stimulus in the event of another cyclical downturn. So faced with a monetary policy tank that wasn't even half full and in some parts of the world, Europe would be one, almost running on empty already, we argued um, that in order to overcome uh, the limitations of the effective lower bound um, for interest rates, we'll need to see much closer coordination. Um, and that um, is exactly what we're seeing at the moment. Um, and it's some of it is down not just to the size and the speed of the COVID-19 shock, um, but also its nature. Um, clearly, um, there was a need to move at high speed and boldly. Um, and it was also obvious that fiscal policy on this occasion really needed to take the lead. And I think the reason why that it was necessary and is necessary is that policymakers really need to put money directly into people's hands uh, through fiscal policy measures and through government guaranteed lending programs. So um, this is not a situation where traditional unconventional monetary policy would have worked because even um, that unconventional monetary policy typically works first and foremost through the interest rate channel, um, reinforcing forward guidance, all that kind of stuff. But with policy rates and bond yields already being so close to zero and in some cases even below zero, 
there wasn't much juice in that interest rate channel anymore. And so um, what we are seeing right now is that I think fiscal policy is taking the lead and monetary policy is providing a very important assist um, in terms of um, ensuring that um, financial markets uh, keep functioning um, in order to prevent an unwarranted tightening in financial conditions and also in uh, providing some direct financing to private sector entities or even in some cases public sector entities uh, to support spending. And they do so by essentially bypassing the traditional transmission mechanisms through the financial system. Um, but for me, it's quite important to understand um, that going direct is not uh, the same as helicopter money. Going direct could converge towards helicopter money in very extreme cases, but first and foremost, it's a monetary policy stimulus that coincides with an expansion in the central bank balance sheet. And that also does not necessarily mean the direct financing of public deficits, um, because the debt could also be purchased in the secondary market. What, what it means is that a fiscal expansion is uh, accompanied by an expansion in money supply, and that's uh, very important. So um, we currently have this uh, policy revolution and what I would call an ad hoc coordination between monetary and fiscal policy. And as I already said, that's certainly welcome to overcome the COVID crisis at hand at the moment. But over the medium term, it will require to think quite carefully about institutional guardrails around this coordination uh, to really ensure that stabilization policies stay on track. Um, and um, so I want to talk a little bit about what kind of what these guardrails could look like. Um, it, you probably need something that is a monetary finance fiscal facility uh, because fiscal policy, especially in the sizes of the fiscal stimulus that is needed right now, could run the risk um, with no monetary policy support of um, being counter, uh, counteracted uh, by a marked increase in interest rates. And that would really uh, defy the purpose of the fiscal policy stimulus. But so in order to provide some guardrails around the policy coordination between monetary and fiscal policy, what we um, outlined last August in, in the paper was really at a relatively abstract level to suggest um, sort of a um, stylized idea of a, a standing emergency financing facility, which would be set up and sized by the central bank. It would activate when the central bank realizes that it doesn't have sufficient monetary policy ammunition to deliver on its policy targets, notably uh, infl the inflation target, but also where applicable, like in the US, uh, full employment. And so it would be in, the, in the, the task of the central bank to really determine how much um, of a joint program was needed um, to get the economy back onto its equilibrium um, track and um, to then provide 
such funding either directly or indirectly to uh, the fiscal authorities. Um, and in this context, we thought it might be very helpful if the central bank also at this stage when activating the standing emergency financing facility also considered making up for past uh, inflation undershoots, so potentially moving towards temporary price level targeting. And um, sort of the central bank continues to um, sort of monitor the situation, produce forecasts as per, per, per normal. And when, the, when it considers the economy being back on the equilibrium track, it would sort of decide to deactivate the standing emergency facility and um, any additional government spending um, deficit spending would then be need to be financed in the markets as uh, as normal, and so here um, the, the 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 task for fiscal policy would really be um, twofold. Um, first of all, to accept that macroeconomic stabilization and a low growth, low inflation, and a low therefore a low equilibrium interest rate environment is only something that can be achieved jointly by monetary and fiscal policy. And secondly, really um, sort of um, subscribe to the framework of the standing emergency financing facility uh, within um, the, the umbrella of which obviously it would be the fiscal authorities who would decide how the fiscal stimulus is best um, spent in order to foster you know, political priorities, social preferences, and the like. Um, so it's the, really the fiscal policy duty would be to deploy the funds, but it's the task of the central bank to size um, the, the, the joint initiative. Um, and um, it would also, in some cases, I don't think we have that problem now, but historically in Europe we had um, some reluctance to engage in deficit spending, for instance, in my uh, in my home country, Germany. And so uh, by a central bank sort of formally announcing how much funding would be needed, how much deficit spending would be needed, at least you could also uh, put some pressure on um, uh, governments that are potentially too austerity-minded and thus sort of undermine the central bank's ability uh, to deliver on the policy targets, whether it's price stability uh, or price stability and full employment. So let's just, um, before concluding, just quickly uh, assess the revolution that we have seen literally happening in macroeconomic policy making in uh, uh, just uh, three months' time. So not only is the policy response that we are seeing, both on the fiscal side and the monetary side, at a completely different scale compared to the global financial crisis, um, but the, the response, the policy response has also been faster uh, than we have seen uh, ever before uh, since the Second World War. Um, but maybe the most important part is really that um, some of the sort of core pillars of the, the what is effectively, I think, a global policy framework of separation to a considerable degree between monetary and fiscal policy has been pretty fundamentally transformed. So, and the key aspect 
of this transformation is the uh, first, the attempt to go direct. So bypassing traditional transmission uh, through the financial sector and instead uh, finding uh, more direct pipes to deliver liquidity to households directly or to companies. Um, the second aspect of the transformation is um, the blurring of fiscal and monetary policy that I already mentioned and for which I sort of suggested as a potential um, sort of policy solution of a frame, at least at the framework level. And then uh, thirdly, that some of the government uh, support that we see going to companies directly um, comes uh, with pretty stringent conditions and um, that could also um, become problematic uh, in the functioning of financial markets and also in corporate governance. But so um, we, I think in the space of literally just a couple of weeks, seem to have now crossed the Rubicon in terms of the separation uh, between fiscal and monetary policy and sort of moved uh, without sort of much of an in-depth discussion about frameworks into this ad hoc uh, coordination. But I do think that now that we have a little bit more breathing space, it is really um, worthwhile discussing some of the longer term consequences because as, fisc as, as uh, central banks increasingly are sort of implementing what de facto are policies that have a clear fiscal aspect to it, they could become more vulnerable to political uh, pressure, as Peter also mentioned. And um, we know from history, uh, Peter referenced already the Treasury um, Accord, um, that it's sometimes not that easy to extract yourself uh, from these kind of uh, heated political situations. And I do think that there are examples in history um, that show that without the proper guardrails around um, how monetary and fiscal policy work together and without defining a clear exit strategy, it's not uh, obvious how policymakers are going to put that genie uh, back into the bottle, the genie of coordination, the uh, the genie of uh, monetary financed um, uh, uh, fiscal fiscal measures, and um, given um, the steep increase in government debt that we're likely to see on the other side of COVID nine the COVID nineteen crisis, there will be uh, most likely quite a bit of pressure on central banks to absorb a considerable part of that debt, um, and to uh, avoid an uncontrolled rise in long-term interest rates. Um, this could be in the form of yield curve control, but it could also be more informally. Uh, but I think uh, that that is really um, where something like a standing emergency financing facility would provide exactly a framework that helps us to define when to exit from the joint monetary fiscal policy effort and that should really be driven first and foremost by the inflation outlook and not, for instance, be dictated by uh, financial or indeed fiscal uh, uh, sustainability concerns. And it's uh, there's still time, I think, to work on such a framework, agree on such a framework. Um, 
because if we if we don't, the orderly exit from the this policy revolution could become indeed more difficult, and it might re, uh, require another run up in inflation, as we, for instance, uh, saw in the 1950s, uh, before it becomes obvious um, that really um, we need an exit strategy uh, in order to uh, anchor inflation expectations uh, firmly and uh, the the benefits of this. So um, let me just sum up um, by, uh, again, uh, sort of stressing um, that we have, that the, the next time is now. Um, we have seen uh, macroeconomic policy, monetary and fiscal policy going through a very rapid re revolution in the effort to cushion the coronavirus shock. Um, and it is essential and the right measure to go direct, but this is, has been a blurring the uh, boundaries between uh, monetary and fiscal policy very materially. And um, this uh, could potentially uh, put us on a slippery slope unless uh, we use the time well um, to put some proper guardrails around this ad hoc coordination and start uh, to think about how best to define um, a clear exit strategy. And we think um, that the framework we provided in our paper last August would, would be um, such a framework. Thank you very much. Elga, just a quick reminder to our audience at this point that you can submit questions. Just include the hashtag, excuse me, the hashtag Cato Econ. We've got uh, several good ones in the queue already, but please submit a, a few more. We'd be happy to ask them. Joe, you are next. Please take it away. Thanks, Chris. Um, Elka brings up some good points there with regard to exit. Um, and I, I want to highlight those as I begin be, before I even get into entrance and, and what it is we're entering. Uh, but when you conceive of something as an emergency financing facility, then one thinks about the world once the uh, emergency has ended. Uh, but as Peter noted, uh, tangentially anyway to what Peter noted, once you build interest groups through the structure that you put in place, uh, those interest groups are going to uh, defend their uh, allocation of, of finance and uh, really not advocate any such exit in order to continue the status quo. Uh, this is a very complicated machine we're talking about, as complicated as monetary policy is. And I want to go back to the foundations of monetary policy. Really, what do we expect the Fed to do? And, and get to the question of how does, how does a credit facility fit into what the Fed does? Monetary policy really is built around the, the nexus of money, prices, and growth. Uh, there was a great piece in The Economist uh, more than a decade ago that raised the questions uh, of what are money, prices, and growth? 
for a long time, monetary policy, uh, along with macroeconomics, focused on what is growth. We like to say, oh, it's just GDP. But once you start digging down into GDP, which GDP components, what does GDP contain? Does it contain services? Does it contain uh, the tech sector? Uh, many other aspects of GDP are still uh, being uh, innovated in terms of how to measure GDP, how to measure growth, and how to measure economic activity. Uh, of course, growth has to be weighed against prices. Uh, prices are typically uh, gauged by inflation. But what is inflation? Uh, we, we really don't know that. Uh, we take some uh, CPI figures, some PPI figures. We, we know that there are problems with chain linking with the quality of goods over time and, and measuring those inflation measures. This is a very technical enterprise. Uh, there are people that devote their entire lives to the study of what is inflation and how do you gather price data. Um, but even more than a decade ago, The Economist raised the question of what is money? Um, it, the idea of money is changing over time, and we don't even need to go to cyber currency to think about that. Uh, just the idea of what is money to a firm, what is a near money, uh, what are our uh, cash instruments to a firm, and, and how does the Fed support markets in these cash instruments and, and near money um, instruments raises a question of what should the Fed be doing? And I think you're seeing a, a response to that fundamental question by the Fed's very broad intervention in a variety of markets to help firms maintain funding um, in, in order, to, in other words, to help money markets work out their own supply demand issues before directly injecting money. Uh, but even in saying this, it's important to remember that there's a long history to uh, Federal Reserve monetary policy or just monetary policy even outside of the Federal Reserve. Uh, the Federal Reserve started up really with very little idea what monetary policy was. The, the main objective was to be uh, an investment bank, if you will, for U.S. Uh, Treasury debt. Uh, the treasury needs an investment bank because a treasury that also controls inflation could inflate away the value of the debt that they're due to repay over time and therefore has no credibility. That lack of credibility was shown uh, throughout the history of the United States under the first and second banks of the United States, where, uh, to be quite honest, foreign investors really didn't have a lot of um, confidence that the U.S. could could really maintain their position on a gold standard and wouldn't otherwise devalue, uh, which led ultimately to the founding of the Fed in order to stabilize uh, Treasury issuance. Uh, very quickly, the Fed was wound into funding World War One and World War II, uh, essentially supporting the Treasury in their issuance, which finally led to the Accord. To Peter's right, the question of the Accord historically uh, contains a lot of issues within it that don't necessarily bear relevance today. Uh, but the issue of independence is something even deeper that goes to separating inflation uh, or control over inflation from the entity that's issuing uh, the debt denominated in that currency. But the idea of open market operations, as we know them, it got a slow start. Uh, there were there were some experiments with open market operations just prior to the Great Depression, though those petered out for a number of reasons. Uh, it really took hold then in the 1950s after World War II and the Fed 
got around to doing something other than funding treasury operations. Uh, very quickly, uh, the issues of open market operations got into uh, issues of what are appropriate targets because you can't see growth directly and you can't see growth but for a lag in prices uh, that occurs after you intervene in the money markets. So what do you use as a target in between your intervention and the price effect and the growth effect? Uh, the Fed played um, with reserves for a long time, free reserves, Fed funds. Now the, the Fed has been going through a period of, of change with regard to their targets. Um, Fed funds hasn't quite worked as well. It actually hasn't worked for a while. And so it's kind of not surprising to see the Fed intervene a bit in direct credit policy. Uh, if you don't have a target and you're not sure where things are going, why not intervene directly in markets? Credit policy has been with us for a long time uh, since the Jeffersonian uh, ideals. Uh, the idea was we need to support farmers. Agriculture is where the, the United States future is. And so we've always supported farmers. We just do it that way. Uh, one of the first uh, special pieces of bankruptcy codes was written for railroads because they're socially valuable. We thought these transportation links needed support. Uh, but these are, are examples of, of what you might think of as targeted industrial policy. Um, they flow through to home ownership. It's another targeted area. Um, but what the Fed has really gotten involved in is a more general credit policy, offering credit to the economy without thought to a particular industry. Uh, but the, the trade-off between target and, ge and general policy uh, can be a little bit tricky. Um, the the general idea of what the Fed is doing uh, was built out of the historical experience with the Reconstruction Finance Corporation in the 1930s. Though the Reconstruction Finance Corporation itself began uh, really with the War Finance Corporation enacted uh, to help funding efforts to fight World War I, which was itself an emergency, if you will. Um, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation is often held up as an example of uh, a, a general credit policy that was very successful. But I offer the, uh, the assertion that what made the features that made the Reconstruction Finance Corporation successful are largely features that we are reluctant to advocate today. Um, those features can really lie around three uh, main elements, funding, scope, and the ending, or the unwind, as Olga was talking about. In terms of funding, uh, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation was funded independent of Congress. Uh, it sold its own bonds. Some of those bonds were uh, bought by the U.S. Treasury, but others were bought by the public. Um, with this kitty of funding, the RFC did not have to rely upon um, Congressional appropriations did not have to rely upon the congressional funding process and could be very, very independent of Congress. That independence uh, became a problem, just uh, like recent funding under the CARES Act, uh, with regard to who uh, the RFC was giving funding to. And within a few months, 
Uh, there was a, a crisis developing with regard to uh, uh, disclosing the names of banks who had borrowed from the RFC uh, with papers putting those out, there being leaks in Washington, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and so the reactions you're seeing today are very, very typical uh, of these types of programs, but there's something that should very much be taken into account and just adopt it. Let, let's disclose. Scope is very important, as Peter noted out. There's a trade-off between liquidity and solvency. Uh, the RFC was supposed to provide liquidity. They were very clear that they did not support insolvent institutions. And there are many institutions uh, that they turned down. The RFC uh, gave out loans initially. Loans really didn't help. If, if you really want to help firms, you need to invest in capital. So uh, within a a little over a year, the RFC turned to giving capital to banks and later on to non-banks. Um, so the scope even evolved to all commercial enterprises. Um, it, it's important to note that then the, the RFC turned into uh, uh, an entity that helped finance World War II as well. But even without going that far, uh, the RFC spawned uh, many agencies that are still around, including uh, Fannie Mae, the Small Business Administration, the Export-Import Bank, um, entities that uh, were left even after their unwind. And I want to make the point, the unwind wasn't easy. The RFC was supposed to be an entity that existed for one year and then was done away with. Uh, of course, uh, when we came up to that one year, Congress said, no, no, we, we want you around for a while. Give them a couple more years. Uh, it was supposed to go away in 1935. Congress again said, no, no, extend. It eventually extended until 1957. Part of the, the problem of the unwind came because it's hard to define an emergency. And when you're done with an emergency, were we done with the Great Depression in 1935? Or did we think we were done in 1935? Um, I mean, we know now we went through the 37 recession, uh, but we didn't know then. But still, many were not willing to put this, in this, this entity out of business. Um, sure, it lasted through 57, but that was through World War II. But even after World War II, um, authorities said, well, wait, no, we can't get rid of this yet. We need that credit funding. So, so when do you decide this is done? In fact, Congress decided with regard to the Small Business Administration and the GSEs and the XM Bank that we'll never be done. We, we need these around. Um, so, so why not build a, a general um, entity that will be around and manage it along those lines? Well, when you start intervening in generally in the economy, you don't have a say in what industries you're going to support. And in the hearings uh, around the dissolution of the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, one of the main objections from members of Congress was that the RFC had invested in, and I quote from the hearings, poorhouses and distilleries. And it was felt that maybe the United States uh, didn't really have a role in supporting such industries. So this, this idea of the ending and the unwinding is, is important, but it even goes beyond those considerations. Um, the end of the RFC really didn't come until the 1970s, because it was only in 1957 that they began unwinding these investments. Uh, so you have a firm, say, who has support from the RFC, either uh, equity, uh, capital, or uh, a loan, who's going to take that over? 
Can the RFC sell it? Will a bank take it? Some banks would take, others they would not. You need to replace this funding structure with something. So really this is uh, quite an involved enterprise once you get into credit policy and, and really go down this road of supporting a general credit policy. Certainly sometimes you need it. Uh, wouldn't you want to invest in developing a COVID vaccine right now? Sure, that would make a lot of sense. On the other hand, if you start picking uh, what you think are winners and those turn out not to be the winners, then you may disadvantage the ultimate winners uh, in the competitive fight. And that is one of the strengths of the United States. Um, in fact, one of the early problems of the United States was pandemics. Um, there, there were routine uh, pandemics of disease around the United States and the world. And uh, in, in those days, the European approach was to shut down the economy like we did recently. Um, the U.S. didn't do that. Uh, now, I'm not, I, I don't want to make light of the issue that lives were lost, but uh, the vaccines for many of those diseases were developed in the U.S. So there is something to be said for a, a, a free and even playing field though there's something to be said for support. Do I have an answer to this question? No, I don't. I just have a lot of questions. Um, and and the, the warning that whatever we get into, uh, be prepared to have something big that we could possibly unwind. Thank you. Thanks so much, Joe. A uh, quick reminder again to our viewers, Whatever platform you're on, uh, submit your questions with the hashtag CatoEcon. Um, we have a number of questions. I, I actually, we had a flurry of questions, Elga, for you. Um, and uh, they're um, somewhat specific. Let's um, throw one or two of those at you, Elga. Um, the, one question says, uh, is it correct to say your proposal amounts to a helicopter drop tied to a price level, but with oversight from the Treasury Department. And a second uh, viewer asks, would you be open to tying the standing emergency fiscal facility to a nominal GDP level target? Uh, yes, thank, thank you very much. Um, so um, it's not, um, uh, the, the, the idea is not really helicopter money. The, you could argue that in a very extreme case where you commit to have this facility running uh, for uh, an infinite amount of time, it amounts to helicopter money. But really, um, that is is in a, a very extreme case, and that's not the, the, the basic idea. The basic idea is really um, to a monetary finance fiscal facility of a limited and temporary nature where the limits are defined um, and set by the central bank under the policy objectives that the central bank has been um, assigned uh, by either the constitution or the, um, the, le uh, the, uh, the legislative branches uh, of, the, of the respective country um, and sort of uh, to uh, put a framework around it. Um, the, and the, the idea really brings together, on the one hand, the monetary financing part, 
um, which again doesn't necessarily mean direct financing. It can also be indirect financing, but it means that the monetary money supply needs to increase to be able to absorb the debt and to prevent interest rates from rising. And then um, um, secondly, uh, the, the combination to basically expedite the process of converging back to the macroeconomic um, targets, notably the inflation target, to also uh, switch to uh, temporary price level targeting. So I would prefer that over nominal um, GDP targeting, even though the, the, the differences there are mostly in nuances. Um, but given that uh, a number of countries really um, specify the objectives in, um, a, on the inflation side and sometimes not even on a GDP def or a PCE deflator, but rather on a consumer price index, um, I think to keep it sort of clean uh, and uh, focus on uh, the price level uh, would be my preferred option. Thank you, Elga. Uh, a bit of a broader question for all of you. Um, each of you, of course, have uh, some uh, very important reservations about how things have unfolded during this crisis. But let's consider uh, what happens if this, um, the actions taken by these emergency uh, credit facilities and the extraordinary coordination that's happening between the Fed and the Treasury what if it turns out to be extraordinarily effective in dealing with this crisis that we have and, and is quite good at uh, helping the economy bounce back? Does that change the criticisms that you have of it? Or might it simply make it more difficult to address and have us stick to the principles that you, you wish to adhere to? Peter, maybe you could start with that. I think that uh, one of the most effective uh, ways that we create knowledge about central banking is to be very sensitive to, to what works and what doesn't. I think it was very hard to watch so many people who had uh, buttered their bread during the 1970s and 80s in central banking see 2009 through 2016 as virtually identical. Those who did that missed an awful lot about how the world had changed. So in my crit critique of the CARES Act and some of the lines that have been transgressed between fiscal and monetary policy now, I hope to update my priors and see what works and what doesn't. I also want to tell you that I'll, I'll be putting a, a time frame around these aftershocks, not just to measure the rapidity of a bounce back, which I think should be the primary focus for what we do, but also the interactions that follow from here. And that will be something that we should be measuring for many years after the fact, how, how Treasury and Fed and Congress interact with each other. Uh, and indeed, I think that is, that's one of the most important aspects here. We are missing so much congressional oversight right now that should have very little partisan content in it. It should instead be about institutional prerogatives uh, of keeping Congress and Fed uh, and the Fed and Treasury relatively separate lanes. And so I think I would separate those two. I'd look at the economic consequences for which all of us should be updating our priors, 
And then look at the institutional consequences, which should take uh, some time to really digest and understand. Joe, I'd invite you also to, to take a crack at that as well, if you wish, but I'll also pose to you a couple of questions that viewers have asked about your uh, thoughts on the RFC. Um, the first reads, so is something like an improved version of RFC a fiscal facility that would exist only in times of crisis or would it stand through normal times? And uh, the second question is, can you talk a little bit about why the RFC was created in the first place? Was it intended as a division of labor between it and the Fed? Thanks, Chris. Um, so first of all, to your original question about the crisis, I do not consider what we're going through currently a crisis. It is an engineered slow down within the economy. It, it is not even an ordinary recession. It is engineered recession. Uh, so if you take that context, the question of what to do next does not necessarily follow your crisis blueprint. Um, one could think, for instance, of how we can most effectively utilize the opportunities presented by this slowdown. We have people at home, people that can't work. Should we target those people for training opportunities that are subsidized by the, by the federal government to retool? Um, if we think through some targeted approaches this way, this might help us emerge stronger. But it's not a crisis. We're not worried about where the losses are. We, we kind of know where they are. It's not like things got stirred up the way they did in, in the global financial crisis. So that leads into your other issues. Uh, should we have kind of a standing facility? Um, I think that we do. I think we should acknowledge that we already do. The federal government now uh, is in direct control of student lending uh, for college students. Uh, obviously, we have the uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, where uh, those institutions are heavily influenced by the U.S. government, the Small Business Administration, others. Why don't we take what we have and centralize it and direct it? Because we have these leftover influences from the, the RFC that we kind of wanted to think went away because we don't really do things like that, that, that reeks of a little bit of socialism in the 1950s. Um, why don't we put them back together and admit that we do have some social goals and some needs to drive economic growth and retool economic growth following this engineered slowdown during the pandemic and shoot us out the other side. Um, in response to the origin of the RFC, it wasn't even really supposed to be a federally sponsored enterprise. Originally, it was going to be a cooperative enterprise among the banks with the government kind of coordinating bank developments. When you think of it that way, isn't that really what we're trying to do? That failed. That failed objectively and had to be replaced within about eight months with a, a more centralized mechanism that was independently funded. We know congressional funding doesn't work. It, it stymied the efforts of the Resolution Trust Corporation after the 80s thrift crisis, uh, which was 
uh, stopped for 18 months while the Congress debated who should get the contracts thrown off by the RTC. Um, no, we need independent funding, continuous attention to economic growth, and a solution that can last us for a while going forward without necessarily getting to some of the perceived excesses that the RFC did, but something that can benefit us not only for uh, this slowdown, uh, which, by the way, isn't going away. We're, we're going to be affected by this new disease for a while. It's going, we don't have a vaccine for SARS and MERS yet, okay? So this is our reality. How can we utilize, find opportunities within this and, and build a structure that can utilize those opportunities to move us forward? Thanks, Joe. Uh, I have another broad question to address uh, to all of you. I'm wondering um, if the and monetary policy lines as an important problem. Um, is this ultimately because of overreach by one institution or another? I think in many years past, we feared the Federal Reserve would overreach its authority. But in this case, is it uh, more so a case of a, uh, filling a vacuum um, where the Congress is not acting? Uh, and how much does that relate to bipartisan dysfunction in Congress? Uh, Joe, I saw you nodding uh, rigorously there. Uh, if you could jump on that and then maybe we could go to Elga for some uh, wrap up comments as we're nearly up against our limits. Yeah, it, uh, looking at the problem historically, monetary policy was too successful in, in the 1990s. It, it led Congress to be sanguine and say, oh, the Fed will do it all for us. We don't need to do anything. Well, um, you know, sorry, Alan Greenspan retired and um, there, monetary policy doesn't solve everything. We need fiscal policy, but fiscal policy involves tough decisions out of Congress. And I would like them to step up. Uh, I don't even need to go to partisan politics to get to that because in my opinion, both sides have dropped the ball. Uh, they need to step up and they need to play their role in, in the overall goal of maintaining steady economic growth. Elga, do you have some thoughts on that theme or, or another one that you'd like to hit before we close? Yeah, I would. Yes, I have. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily uh, say that monetary policy has overreached on its own volition, but it, if anything, it would, I would argue it has been overburdened. Um, we see this, I mean, there are examples uh, in the US as well, but for instance, sort of just uh, looking at Europe in what is still a very incomplete um uh, monetary union because we don't have a fiscal union, we don't have a political union. It's pretty clear that uh, much of the aftermath of the global financial crisis and the euro crisis that followed was really left uh, for the European Central Bank um, to mop up and to uh, to straighten out. And I think, um, so I wouldn't want to see it characterized as overreaching. I would more... Um, uh, characterize it as being overburdened, um, and um, uh, and that's I think problematic. It was a secular trend that was made possible by disinflation, um, the which started in the 1980s. Um, but obviously, as um, inflation started to undershoot and 
uh, equilibrium interest rates uh, kept for a variety of reasons um, grinding lower, um, it was clear that that phase uh, would need to come to an end and that fiscal policy would now need to step up. And um, that also means a sort of taking you know, ownership in political processes and at the electoral ballots. Great. Thank you very much, Elga. I'm afraid now we're, we're running out of time. Uh, I want to thank our outstanding panelists for a great discussion. I want to thank our audience uh, for tuning in, for submitting uh, many great questions. I apologize that I could not get to all of them. We had only limited time. Uh, and I would remind you that a video recording of the event will be available later today on Cato's webpage. Um, and with that, I'm going to turn it back to David Beckworth for some closing remarks. Thank you, panel, for a great discussion. That was really thought-provoking. Thank you, Chris, for a great job moderating that panel. And thank you, Elga, Joe, and Peter, for great comments. Thank you, listeners, as well, for joining us today. And we invite you back next week on Tuesday, June 23rd, for our next panel. You won't want to miss it. It's titled Modernizing Liquidity Provision. Until next week, take care.